everybody, welcome to another episode of the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, uh, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every single week. I'm James, with me today I have Henry, I have Jessica, and we have a very special guest. We have Dr. Masla Armin, recently named Rising Star in the HSJ's Top 50 BAME list. He is the National Clinical Advisor in Population Health and Sustainability at Health Education England. He's an NHS GP. He's previously been a specialist advisor for the CQC. He has done lots of cool stuff and we are delighted to have him here today. So Maz, how are you doing, sir? Thank you, James, for that kind introduction. Um, glad to be here. Looking forward to this conversation. Excellent. Excellent. Right. I tell you what, let's let's get into the stories because I know the first one's one that you can talk about. So on to story number one. Right. Story number one this week. NHS report calls for artificial intelligence training for all staff. Henry, what's going on here? Yeah, so NHS AI Lab, uh, who you would imagine would be calling for AI training for NHS staff uh, and Health Education England uh, are calling for all health and care staff to receive training in AI. We talked last week about the study in Nature that talks about whether when health tech goes wrong, whose fault that is, whether it's the clinician's fault, whether it's the provider's fault, the organisation that procured it, that sort of moral maze that is is still going on. Um, And I think this is a really good first step in providing the right tools and skill sets for staff to use technology confidently. So a really positive development that they are calling for it. Hopefully that recommendation is taken on board and comes into some strategy for the NHS in the near future. Maz, the clues in the title for, or your clues in your title, isn't it, for uh, whether you can comment on this, Health Education England, uh, educating the clinical workforce. Is AI something that you guys are hoping to educate all us clinicians on yes yes so ai is a it's a emerging emerging thing and i would say in the in the in the health service um we definitely need more of it increasingly in nhs i think there's more use of something called population health management which is basically looking at large data sets and and really understanding your population to see what they need and i think getting more advanced data analytical tools and ai into this will I think will help that that discipline. Um, I think gone are the days when you're having to put everything on Excel or whatever, all these other different graphs and charts. I think we need to get more advanced. And yeah, so there's definitely it's 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 we need more of it and and it is coming. I think the trade the, the training for clinicians is so important as well, right? Like just the 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 idea that AI is coming and we're just sort of expected to use it potentially. Like, there's no, there's no sort of roadmap, is there? There's no, there's nothing that I'm aware of that if I'm a clinician right now, as you are, right, you're a practicing GP, you're hearing about AI that's going on, that's happening, that the practice might adopt something, or the CCG, the ICS says, hey, you're using this now. Like, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Right? Like, surely this is a this is a very good idea to give, to give people training to at least. I don't know, make people kind of glad that it's coming or to help with adoption or to help with use or to help you with your day job or give you a bit of hope or, you know, all of these things, maybe. You tell me. Yeah, no, honestly, I think it's, we always, whenever there's a challenge comes, it, 
everything in NHS, a lot of things gets done through the workforce. And I think the workforce aren't going to wake up on a particular Monday being able to do this or that. You, you do need that development program. You do need to educate. I think that's why, you know, education training is so important in healthcare. Um, something interesting interesting we, we published recently was an um, AI roadmap. That's an interesting piece that I would um, urge you all to have a read of. There's an AI road, roadmap. Yeah, interestingly, there's the International Data Corporation highlighted that health accounts for one of the smaller shares of like actual global data amount. But we are like the rate of increase of, of healthcare data is, is, is one of the fastest rising. So with all this data coming in, I think we are going to need the help of AI to really sort of um, get the true potential of all this data we're accumulating. Absolutely. And as Henry said last week, you know, once we uh, once we decide where the liability lies and we start educating people on what it can do and educating people on how to use it, the future is bright, I think, for AI um, in healthcare. I think it is incredibly necessary. And as I've said a few times before, I do genuinely believe that we will talk about days pre and post AI because I think it will be that transformational for uh, not only the quality of care, but the volume and the efficiency and the cost, so like everything. I think it's so, so, so important. Cool. Thanks, guys. On to story number two. So story number two this week, biotech IPOs are strange, even in a down market. Uh, Henry, interesting title. Yeah, I was going to say, I just really enjoy the fact that they went for the adjective strange. It's got strong, I have a Friday 5pm deadline vibes to it. They've gone with different, <laughs> unusual, just just strange. Biotech IPOs are strange. Um, but it raises a really good point and not one that I'd previously considered. Most companies who IPO have a product that they can sell. They probably have revenue coming in, if not profit. Um most biotech companies who IPO, it's a financial mechanism. It's something that they are using to raise more money, but they might not yet have a product ready to go to market. Now, they might have all of the data that sits behind the product that's ready to go to market, all of the clinical trials, maybe any of the other kind of ratifications they need. But very often, uh, and it makes the point in this, that only two out of 25 biotech companies who entered public markets this year had something they could actually sell. Whoa. And that is... Yeah, that's really unusual. I, I can't I can't see any other area of health tech, be it med tech or like SaaS solutions that could get to IPO without having something that they could at least sell. You look at some of the biggest, you know, IPOs that health tech has done, things like Babylon, they had a product that was being used across the world. It was being sold to organizations. It was it had a direct consumer model. There was something being sold. It's really unusual, and it's not something I'd thought of before. And I think it raises the question, will that, in a difficult market, will that change? I think it's symptomatic of the intersection with big pharma as well, though, where it take, in biotech and in pharma, it takes such a long time to get a product to market, and it actually takes such a long time to get to the point where you can start producing data or, you know, clinical trial-worthy data, um, and it for that reason and, and numerous others, it costs so much money. And so I think that I didn't I didn't realise that actually biotech I, IPOs are different in the sense that they're clearly IPOing so much earlier. And when you think that, I think they talked about Singulate Therapeutics here who IPOed in December last year, they'd only raised 7.5 million in their Series A and then went straight to IPO. Like that's not 
that that is just unheard of in any other industry, much less in health tech, you know. And by comparison, you know, you have the likes of Ori Biotech, who did a really impressive and one of the you know biggest ever Series Bs of 100 million earlier this year. That's almost equivocal to the the level that some of these companies are IPOing at, and they're clearly seeing it as a, another mechanism to raise money rather than going back to investors, for instance. Um, and I also, yeah, I thought it was interesting that um, the article talks quite a lot about acquisition and how actually acquisition is generally the route that biotech companies go down. But it doesn't really talk in that greater detail about why, for instance, some of the rationale that some of these companies may be following going down the IPO route rather than going through to acquisition. Um and generally, you get acquired at that kind of earlier level anyway. But yeah, new information to me, but super interesting. Every day is a school day, particularly if you are reading this article from Crunchbase News. Yeah, I think I think it's really well written. It really goes into this in um, in some detail, but but sort of guides you through it. What's the point of a biotech IPO? It goes over that. It talks about timing. It talks about M&A. So yeah, it's a really, really good article. Um, introduction to biotech IPOs uh, for those of you that aren't too au fait with them. It really explains why people do them and and that kind of thing. So yeah, recommending clicking that in Health Tech Pigeon this week. Uh, cool. On to story number three. Right, story number three this week. YouTube is going to let doctors and nurses apply to be labelled as reliable. Well, doctors, nurses, psychologists, family therapists, social workers, all are eligible for this feature. And it's going to verify licenses. They're going to make agreements to follow best practices. Information should be science-based, objective, transparent, equitable. Uh, YouTube says users accepted into the program will be periodically reassessed to make sure they still meet the criteria. This is interesting, isn't it? I think in the, I'm looking at Maz here specifically, but you know, as a fellow clinician, but in a world of misinformation, in a world of googling things, and you just hope that if your patients have googled it, they've clicked on a reputable source. This could be something good, something useful. I also, you know, can't help but this come to mind of uh, the people that are verified. Are they going to get slightly more traffic from people that are looking for them to flog a product? I don't until they get a. Uh, their reassessment coming in? I, I don't know. Perhaps that is a bit cynical, but um, YouTube working to try and grow the volume of reliable health information on their platform. I don't know. Maz, what do you think about this? Yeah, no, it's, it's very interesting. I think the problem with YouTube is, and I think lots of people have recognized this, there's, there's lots of people out there talking about things and I don't know, sometimes people have suggested, are, are you qualified to talk about that? Um, I think historically medicine and health, well, not medicine, healthcare has changed because when when you first go back like to the Middle Ages um, and then doctors had, had exclusive um, knowledge to lots of things and as things have changed, you know, now you've got so many different healthcare professionals equally the public have, have access to a lot of the research that's out there. So I think I've been on YouTube where I've seen some individuals talk about things and then and they talk about it quite well. They're using research. and But, but also I've seen lots of ca- characters talk about things and then and you can clearly see the angle where they're coming from. It's quite biased. It's only looking at certain 
research papers in 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 sort of in silo and and you know not being objective um so i i think i think i think there needs to be some improvement in that and i think this may help and um, whether it will fix it completely i, I don't know but it's it's def- definitely i think it's a, it's, a, it's a good step for some reason var in football just came to mind of like at least they're trying something at least they're getting on <laughs> they're on the train now it might need refining there's probably going to be a couple of things that that <laughs> that need it but at least yeah. they're going in the right direction to more accuracy but it feel it does feel like that to me if it, it feels like and you know i know vishal at, at youtube and stuff as well for health so like i i'm 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 excited about this. Like I, th- I think this is good. I think it will have a few effects that can be planned and thought about and anticipated. I think it might also have a few that might blindside us as to what does that do for how young clinicians see careers. Does this become a career path? You know, the career to being a content creator in the general world, you know, came up and existed with all these platforms. Being a certified medical professional you know, giving delivering health information gives gives people a career move, maybe that they want to be a career content creator in doing this because obviously they're still going to get YouTube ad revenue and that for their channels and that kind of thing. Being verified might just increase that. And actually, does that then create this path of wanting to be verified, therefore wanting to deliver good information, therefore improving the quality overall? And actually, people just stopping watching the things that aren't verified. I think that. I, I do see a world where that is the case, um, which can help. I won't say can only help, but it can help. Um, but clearly, medical misinformation needs to be tackled. People being sold things that do not work <laughs> needs to be tackled. Um, I don't know. I think I, 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 I'm confident it's a good move. As you say, Maz, it's not going to solve everything straight away. And and much like VAR, there's going to be uh, a few things that slip through the net, I imagine. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited about it. I think what healthcare professionals will like it in the sense of we have to do a lot of CPD, continuing professional development. Yeah. And it's, it's trying to go to different places to get, you know, you've got to go to this course, you've got to go to this, you've got to travel here. If it's all on YouTube, and it's coming from from somebody that's that's recognised. Then I I can use that as a clinician. Interesting. But if I now go on YouTube and say, "Oh, I've gone to so and so page and I've learned this," mm. my appraiser is going to look at me and like, mm. "Oh, you're learning medicine from YouTube." <laughs> but if there's now you know sort of verified um, clinicians and other healthcare professionals that I can learn from, it's it's going to make my life a lot easier. I think the public don't know how much we have to do to to try and maintain our our skills and and rightly so rightly so so i think the clinicians will and healthcare professionals will, will will definitely like it i the number of times i get people coming up to me and say oh i saw this in youtube i saw this there's all these weird and wonderful diets and every every person talking about these diets will tell you this is the best diet out there i've heard of the carnivore diet i've heard of the keto diet i've heard of f- only a fruit based diet there's all these different diets and and each diet is presented as being like oh this is the best ever clearly there's limitations to anything youtube is the most utilized search engine in the world and i think you're absolutely right about that there needs to be something some kind of filter to start tackling medical misinformation because people can go and find anything they want to on there 
you know, we joke at home that all human knowledge is available on YouTube. If you want to, you know, redo your house, you can find everything you need to know on there. And people will have the same perception about their own house. And I think, you know, on Instagram, like in theory, anyone can be verified. You just have to have enough followers and get enough people to like your posts. And I think that actually having some kind of credibility that showcases exactly what you said, the CPD you're doing, the qualifications that you have, the experience that you have, actually starts to create, and it might not be perfect straight away, but starts to create a level of trust, provided that there is censorship. There's an interesting thing here with censorship, um, because I think there's one thing, It's I think it's okay for the most part, to have thoughts and opinions on things. But I think when you're looking for factual information, it is important to be able to find a trusted source. But also, I am going to trust the opinions and perspectives of a qualified professional more so than my next door neighbour who works in HR, for instance, you know, on a, on a healthcare topic, obviously, if it's HR, I'll go straight to her. But, um, and so I, I, I think that it's a good first step. And I think it has to start somewhere. I'm really keen to chat to the Google team and find out more about how this is working. And I'd really like to see a level of transparency. And I think that's the thing that like, it has to be really clear what that process is in order for people to be able to have that trust. Um, and also for healthcare professionals and I guess even governing bodies to be able to see that it is robust and maybe even collaborate to make it better um, because it's not going to be like perfect straight away it's going to need to evolve over time so maybe that's a really nice collaboration between the gmc and youtube who knows heard it here first people yeah definitely Uh, not to say anything new but i think summarizing what you guys have said i think maz you said it i think there's there's benefit to the medical professionals probably beyond um the obvious here in that as you say there's there's an interesting cpd market um of people actually getting their information, staying up to date using certified people. I think there's something interesting about the medical education market there as well, potentially. But also as a clinician, having patients better informed when they come to you saying, I watched a video on, and at least knowing that they can be guided towards better information, I think is really important. There's also something for me as well, and this might be a bit rogue and controversial, but by doing that, you're 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 still enabling free speech, but you are basically cutting it off at the source in terms of its reliability. If it's not, uh, if it's misinformation, so you're, you're still you're still allowing people to say whatever they want to say. But actually, what you're doing is is by slapping a verified badge on certain people with what they're saying. It just means that people are more likely to trust the version that we believe scientifically is correct and evidence based, which is. I believe only a good thing. I also think as well, just, you know, seeing verified people commenting on certain health videos as well, just like dropping their opinion, I think is an interesting one. We've all seen the arguments in the comments, right? About this versus that. Someone verified then coming along going, no, no, it's this. <laughs> I think <laughs> that might be quite entertaining to see. Um, there are certain medical professionals on Twitter that do that very well. Yeah. I think I think an interesting one, one one to watch, and yeah, there's that YouTube. We've got that event coming up actually, where they are talking about what they're doing in health. They were going to do it on, I think Wednesday, but then they pushed it back to uh, December at some point. But yeah, I'm going to go to that and uh, I'll report back. And and I think one thing from YouTube, I think, and this is often via the patients who come and see me, is is sometimes they do that. There's always something weird and wonderful that a patient will come and tell you about, and and 
it is interesting to then go on the YouTube and look at the the research that's that's being listed by that content creator. And I I have learned new stuff from YouTube from from people who aren't who aren't um, healthcare professionals. So I think there's that balance. I think mm. some people do have that sort of they have gone and read on something interesting because they may not be a healthcare clinician but they've got those research interpre- interpretation skills from like another field so they apply that and then they apply that to, to health uh, healthcare literature and then they do come up with some interesting opinions that you then have to go away and, and critically think about but equally i have seen others who who have an agenda whereby they're they're promoting certain supplements and that's when i'm like mm, okay so there's the good and bad and also just because you're a licensed healthcare professional it may not well be that that your views are in line mm-hmm. with best practice that's that's also mm-hmm. uh, a big thing to consider so but it's interesting and when it does happen i think oh uh, yeah i <laughs> think this is going to be right. And like you said, I'll be very interested to see the comment sections. <laughs> I think we all Maybe there should be a the comment comments. section just for a comment section just for the registered people just to really filter out all the others other stuff and see how how all these professors and maybe these other teachers are are debating a a a, a uh, certain topic. Do you know what? Slight tangent, but I actually, I actually, that's a really good idea. I actually heard Jordan Peterson say this as a, a way of getting rid of just general trolls is actually just get people to verify their identity with the passport office and have a profile that's got a verified identity as that's exactly who they are. And then have a comment section that's only them. So people that are willing to put the, the, you know, their name to their comment uh, and random anonymous trolls just have their own section that's hidden and people can open it if they want. My very challenge is that yes there are going to be healthcare professionals who don't necessarily perceive best practice guidelines to be the way to do things but they're also going to be in clinical practice so and they're going to be treating people too so I think they yes they exist in YouTube and they may be verified there but they're also verified in real life so those people just exist and are out there in the world so I actually think that it's not a YouTube problem it's not an online problem that's just generally I guess an issue with any kind of profession that there are always going to be people who are slightly divergent from perhaps where they should be or even, you know, just different thinkers. But I think that's something also to be mindful of that, you know, they won't just exist on YouTube. If they exist on YouTube, they'll exist in clinical practice too and they'll be seeing patients. Very good point, actually. Very good point. And and I think those divergence, they sometimes, you know, always, because science is always, you've got to, the whole thing is it's inquiry, always have to think about things. And, and it, it does help move, move the profession forward. Final story of today, the top three cyber threats facing healthcare organisations today. Henry, what are the top three cyber threats? They're pretty much exactly what you would expect them to be. <laughs> so one is phishing, which is, I read a really interesting article the other week about how phishing is a human problem, not a cyber problem. I think maybe the maybe there's too much nuance uh, in that, but I really like the idea that that's a human problem and an education problem. So phishing attacks, they're the top threat. Um, HIMSS in their 2021 healthcare cybersecurity survey basically said that comes way above everything else. The second one is ransomware. Um, we've seen that happen a couple of times in the NHS, famously the WannaCry attacks um, and around the world as well. So ransomware is still there. Can't, can't think how 
damaged you'd have to be as a human being to be like, yeah, it's ransomware attack a hospital. But anyway, um, and the last one is something that I know Mass wants to talk about, which is increasing complexity, uh, creating more attack vectors in IT environments. So the more remote kind of care that we have, the more things are pushed out into virtual wards and various other arenas, the more capacity there is and the more opportunity there is for people to attack those links between a physical medical or hospital environment and a virtual one so those are the big three essentially you've got that i when i read that article i found it very interesting just because i realize now um since covid we do a lot more virtual delivery of care and we're calling patients and what i've noticed is and i do thank the public and the patient for this they have a high trust in healthcare professionals but that equally does mean that when i do call somebody and and when I say that I, I'm I'm Doctor So and So, that's it. Like the, the the security blanket goes down. I can get anything and everything. I don't want to give these fraudsters an idea, but it's it, it does worry me sometimes. Um, and there's been times when you know when you're an autopilot and you're calling one patient after another, and then you realize oh you haven't done the ID ID check, or sometimes I'm thinking oh have I even introduced myself? Still, you just you just get suddenly lots of information given. And, and and as a healthcare professional, you know, you can get lots of information that you can then, I think, I don't know, Forsters can probably do lots, lots of innovative stuff with it. So that's something that's been, immediately came in my mind when I, when I saw that article. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's a few stats in here as well. Well, they talk about the, the internet of things or specifically as they call it, the internet of medical things and describes them as being perfect entry points for attackers to break into a healthcare system. They say it's part of the reason that healthcare should segregate devices on a separate network rather than the same, because there's been a 123% spike in IoT-related attacks. And, you know, you mentioned virtual wards there, Henry, or just broadly care, moving more into the community. We're using more devices. It's something that we definitely need to be more aware of. I know that when we had Peter Birch on here from Talking Health Tech, we were talking about cyber and we made a commitment to talk about it more, which is possibly why it's turned up again today. But yeah, we are using more and more things that can be hacked. And it seems like that's the direction of travel. Um, needs to be something we're aware of. Uh, and as Maz says, you know, it extends far beyond just hacking into the odd thing. There's there's a whole security infrastructure that I think needs to be respected and the use of telemedicine and all the rest of it. If people can hack this stuff, people can say they're doctors, they'll be party to all this information. And I do agree with you, Maz, actually, that there's an element there of being very privileged. Um, the information that you're willing to, or patients are willing to give you uh, 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 just an introduction. I think it is incredibly important that we talk about cybersecurity more and we make sure that as a sector, we are completely on top of it. Incredibly important. Short and sweet today, guys. But yeah, thanks for joining me. Maz, what are you up to at HEE? What's on, what's on your plate at the minute before we let you go? Firstly, thank you for having me. It's been very interesting. I think at HE, I think one of the key, two key areas, we're trying to get more of the workforce to do population health. And that basically incorporates a lot of reducing health inequalities. So that's one big thing. So increasing the skill mix in, in, in population health. So we don't just leave it to a very small um, workforce, which is public health, the public health workforce. Um, more of the workforce needs to do more. So that's one area. And then another thing is the sustainability agenda. Mm. Do you know that the NHS is by far the single biggest producer of carbon emissions in, in the UK um, from the public sector? 
Wow. Um, and if you were to, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So certainly in England, I'm not sure UK wide, but in England, by far the biggest producer of the public sector organisations. If you were to group healthcare across the whole world and then make it a country, it is up there with like the top countries of carbon emissions. So I think it's 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 we're we're suffering from our from our own successes. We 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 are we're more and more we're we're able to tackle diseases, but that also means we're doing a lot. So the NHS was the first healthcare organization to commit to be net zero by a particular date. So at HE now we're 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 leading the 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 view that we need to educate the workforce around sustainability, essentially move towards being net zero. And it's not just about carbon, it's about just general being more efficient in the materials that we use, things like that. So population health and sustainability, those two are exciting things happening at the moment in HE. Definitely. Good for us. Good for everybody. Good for the planet. Maz, thanks a lot for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Henry, Jess, pleasure as always. And something new for you on the Health Set Pigeon podcast today. So you might remember from a couple of weeks ago that Apple looking to move into the health insurance space. Now, I wanted to know what this meant for healthcare, insurance, health tech. And so I have been speaking to Amit Patel and Amit is the founder of Peachy. Peachy is a brand new insure tech and you can kind of think of it as health insurance getting with the times. Um, Anyway, I've been speaking to Amit about what he thinks about Apple's move into the insurance space. Have a listen to this. But my very initial uh, response to that was um, the old uh, saying, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. And and it made me laugh a little bit. But um, uh, to to be fair, I think um, it's not unusual for big tech like data companies to start to invade spaces that they haven't traditionally visited. Um, and so, you know, it came as no surprise really that, you know, it's been muted for a while, I think, at least, or I've been thinking about how Apple will make its dent in the health and like insurance world. And so it's no real surprise to me, in my view. Obviously, these companies are pioneers in in using data and technology um, in new ways to improve our lives in general, right? And you know, health has been this area where data has been under-leveraged in an organized way um, to manage people's health risks or um, health issues um, in a data-driven way. And so, you know, I'm I'm like, I think it's great if they do enter because it ought to give, you know, health insurers, um, health uh, participants of the health industry sort of a uh, kick up the backside around how they need to like get more uh, with it in the 21st century around using data and, and technology to kind of service customers. So I think I think it's great from that perspective. Yeah, I do wonder about you know privacy, data privacy, all of this sort of stuff. Google obviously uh, came in a while back um, through Google Health in London, and there was quite a lot of noise around the NHS setting data sets to to Google and so forth. So I think there is this thing around um, data privacy, which I'd like to, you know, be reassured about with some of these tech giants um, so that, you know, they're not just using um, people's data for their own commercial benefit, but for more holistic good and with people's uh, sort of permission and consent, you know, appropriately managed. So, you know, I think that that's like key, 
a key important element for me and that they don't create more information asymmetry. Um, so the customer has got you know some information, but as you know, in the UK, for example, the NHS harbors all of the information that 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 is all about our health, and it's not actually that easy to access. And so I just hope that that you know doesn't carry on when when the tech giants come along. But I generally I think it's a really positive thing that they will come and um, enter the market and and almost deploy you know, their skills, their their technology, their platforms into a space that I think needs to be pulled out of the dark ages. Currently, the way we price a risk in, in insurance, health insurance market, at least, it's quite rudimentary. It's like related to like where someone lives, how old they are, and a few other like health parameters. And, and many of those health parameters are kind of ne- negative responses to questions rather than um, understanding that person in, in a greater bit of detail. And the reality of life is risk is very heterogeneous across the population. And, you know, broadly, there is inherent factors like your genetic makeup and so forth, which, you know, some would say it's hard to control, right? Um, and then the other part is obviously the way you live your life, what you eat, how much exercise you do, how much stress you put yourself under, and those sorts of things. And I think, um, you know, the the use of use of data ought to um, allow more tailored or personalization of risk and therefore pricing. And so, you know, we shouldn't o- end up over penalizing people who have got good health risk and, and so forth. So uh, and, and the, the, the converse goes as well in terms of people who've got health risk, they should be priced appropriately and other segments of risk shouldn't be cross subsidizing that that risk. Um, I guess you know you could you could argue that you know insurance is supposed to be pooled risk, and so there is supposed to be cross subsidization. But I think more data just brings transparency to the issues and questions that that we constantly ask ourselves in terms of appraisal of risk. That's the first thing. The other thing I think is like you know the Apple Watch platform and the ability to kind of say to customers like if you. Um, and, and again, this is a bit of a rudimentary way of looking at life, but like if you moved more or you ate less or you changed your blood pressure, which we can tell from the Apple Watch, it's it's high or relatively high to, you know, 5% um, lower or 10% lower. And you incentivize people to, to, to do that by reducing their premium or providing them with perks or, or whatever that might be. I think that feedback mechanism is largely missing out of most propositions in health insurance today, apart from like, let's say, vitality and their um, uh, kind of feedback around steps and, you know, giving away perks and that kind of stuff. And I think, you know, the dawn of behavior change, you know, something like an Apple Watch and Apple insurance coming into the market could really change that piece and feed it back into like health risk and pricing and all that kind of stuff. And and I think there's a segment of of people that that this would really appeal to. Uh, We'll see you all next week. If you want to grab the links to all of those stories, you can head to healthtechpigeon.com. Thanks very much.